Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson. I'm one of the hosts on the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Chika Watanabe about her book, Becoming One, Religion, Development, and Environmentalism in a Japanese NGO in Myanmar, which is out in uh, 2019 from the University of Hawaii Press. Becoming One is a rich ethnographic study of the work of a Japanese NGO called OISKA, the Organization for Industrial, Spiritual, and Cultural Advancement. Watanabe takes a deep dive into the daily workings of Oiska and explores the moral imagination of constructing unity based on a distinctly Japanese-marked set of ideals and practices within the confines of an unusual Japanese NGO working for decades in Myanmar. Oiska is intriguing in its own right, with roots in a post-war new religion and connections both to right-wing politics in Japan and commitments to a kind of new Shinto-derived global environmentalist uh, and also to a Japanist-slash-culturalist social reform agenda. Becoming One is is especially significant as an object of study given not just the NGO's unusual pedigree, but also the historical relationship between modern Japan and Burma-slash-Myanmar and the ways in which Oiska forces us to re-examine the politics of international aid and development. Watanabe's book is attuned to the muddy uh, dorokusai processes of making people, hitozukuri, and constructing a shared sense of home, kurusato, that animate the everyday workings of Oiska, as well as the tensions that these goals create on the grounds in the training camps. So, Dr. Watanabe, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So I wonder if you could uh, tell us about how you came to this project that eventually became the book Becoming One. Great. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me on, first of all. Um, So I'd always been interested in uh, NGO work, questions about humanitarianism, development aid. That was on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, I wanted to do a project in Myanmar, uh, Burma. Um, And so I, you know, I looked around, uh, you know, different avenues for pursuing that. I started out being interested in uh, assistance to refugees in the Thai-Burma border, but for various reasons, I gave that up. And then when I realized I could go to Myanmar and Burma, and this is in uh, 2006 or so, 2000, yeah, 2006 when I started my PhD. Um, yeah, I, I just met about you know different people. I went uh, and I really you know one of the things that my my supervisor uh, at Cornell told me was. You know, I know that you're interested in NGOs in general and humanitarianism, but I suggest you look at Japan, you consider looking at Japanese organizations, um, primarily for practical reasons, because there's a lot of funding for research related to Japan, but not so much about Burma, Southeast Asia at the time. Uh, so I went, I talked to, you know, Burmese organizations, um, but also Japanese NGOs. And so partly it was, you know, for practical reasons that I ended up uh, looking at OISCA because it was the one organization that was quite uh, open about having a researcher come in, whereas other Japanese organizations tended to be a little more cautious, especially given the political climate. Um, but on the other hand, I was also interested in 
in general, how organizations marry their uh, missions or ideals of how to make a better world with practical, um, you know, with their practical projects. And OISCA is one of those organizations that has a pretty clear, um, you know, vision of, of how it wants to change the world. Uh, in contrast to a lot of other Japanese organizations whose mission statements, interestingly, are quite practical. Uh, if you go online and look up Japanese NGO mission statements, they're often, you know, our mission is to build bridges or our mission is to build schools, right? Um, so part of it was, uh, you know, I was interested, I, I found the mission statement um, that Oiska put forth really, really interesting in that, um, you know, sort of the ideals that they were trying to reach for. And at the time, I didn't realize that it was it was the way it was because it was coming out of a religious organization or religious vision of the world. Um, you know, so the project started with my general interest in humanitarian issues to begin with and Burma, Myanmar, um, but then the way that it unfolded around questions of religion, non-religious um, arguments, environmentalism, agriculture, all of those things were... Um, were just products. Were just products of the choices I made, and not necessarily what I started out with. Yeah, can you tell us um, a little bit about what it was specifically about uh, Burma slash Myanmar that uh, was that had sparked your original interest? Yeah, um, yeah. Let me think back. <laughs> um, well, again, again, so much of it is about about coincidence or contingent links that you end up making because. As I mentioned, you know, first I was interested in, I've always been interested in questions of refugees, um, refugeeness, um, migration. Uh, and, and so at first I was interested in the Thai-Burma border, um, you know, as one of those case studies that I wanted to learn more about because I wanted to learn more about refugee issues in Asia. Uh, and I just happened to meet someone who ran an, a nonprofit organization in the border region. He, he was Japanese. Um, so I ended up spending time, some time in the refugee camps. Um, so that's how I got, you know, I first, you know, thought about Burma, Myanmar, um, because I, until that point, it wasn't, you know, particularly, you know, I, the country that I was, that I was specifically interested in. It was more the refugee issues that drew me to the, um, to the country. Uh, but then once I started looking into it, I, I, I noticed that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, not a lot, um, there's, you know, some asylum seekers in Japan. Uh, and at the time, you know, this is in the 2000s, uh, and it might be the case today as well, but I, I don't know the figures. But one of the groups that um, get recognized as refugees the most are from Burma in Japan. Um, even though they're not, the highest number of asylum seekers are not from Burma, but they are the people who get recognized as refugees the most in Japan, or they were at the time. Um, and so I found that really interesting in terms of if I wanted to do a project about Burmese refugees in Japan, you know, that could be perhaps a topic that I could pursue. And I did think about that in the first year of my PhD when I realized doing the Thai-Burma border thing was, you know, in terms of the language practicalities, you know, I would have to learn Burmese and Thai. And I realized that was probably going to take me a little too long. Um, so then for a time period, I was thinking of doing um, a a project about Burmese refugees in Japan. Um, but so I've always, you know, I, I was always looking into projects that would link me to Japan in some way or another. Um, and it just happened that, you know, yeah, Burma came along at that point. 
Yeah, so then you went back and did your field work in Myanmar, um, and that sort of brings us uh, into the book, sort of setting the scene for um, you know what what you're writing about in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about um, when you did your field work, um, what the situation was in Myanmar at the time, um, and also a little bit about the historical relationship between uh, Myanmar and Japan, and sort of why that was important to. Uh, your work in a more general sense, and also uh, OISCA, which you mentioned, which is the uh, NGO that you worked with. Yeah, so I first went, now I can't remember, I think it was 2007, perhaps. Um, I, I, yeah, I can't remember, but it was around, you know, 2007, 2008, there were those, um, there were these protests that had happened, um, uh, monks marching, uh, and then there was Nargis, the cyclone. Um, so it was, I can't really remember when it, but it was around that time that I went, um, a couple of times over the summer period. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I, I, I first went in relation to helping, um, Japanese organizations, but also Burmese, uh, NGOs at the time. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, when I, I mean, you know, Japan, um, I think I, you know, as you know, probably Japan has been one of the, um, biggest, largest donors uh, to Myanmar uh, throughout its its um, you know its military regime. The history of that time period, Japan continued to be a big financial you know donor in a you know sometimes in an indirect way, but still it was one of its. I mean, allies might be putting it too strongly, but you know it was one of those countries that engaged you know productively engaged with the military regime, I suppose. Um, and so, and often the the discourse around it. At least, you know, maybe not so much from the Burmese side, but definitely from the Japanese side has always been, oh, you know, Burma, you know, Myanmar and Japan have a special relationship. You know, this idea of having a special relationship. And some of it was harking back to um, the Second World War, forgetting the colonial period. It was always about, you know, Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi's father trained in Japan in order to, you know, defeat the British um, and, you know, um, uh, and fight for the Burmese, uh, you know, uh, rights. Uh, and so, you know, and also just uh, Japanese um, commentators would often talk about uh, cultural similarities between the Japanese and the Burmese. Uh, and, you know, as you know, you know, there's people who are called in Japan birukichi, like people who are birumakichigai, like people who are crazy about Myanmar. So there's something, um, you know, there are political reasons for that relationship, but there was something affective or sentimental about that that connection the Japanese people often um, invoked. And so I wanted to understand more how that impacts or if it has any impact on uh, Japanese development aid in the country. Um, so, and this is not really something, you know, a few people obviously have written about it, but it's not something that had been explored in depth uh, and definitely not ethnographically. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to to do that a little bit more and, and also to, you know, on a, you know, not related to, to Myanmar specifically, but to offer an ethnographic inside view of what it means to do development aid in a non-Christian, you know, non-Euro-American organization, uh, which, you know, we don't have very much of in anthropology. Yeah. So you're, you're working with this sort of very complex and fraught and, you know, post-colonial relationship between Japan and Burma. And I thought it was particularly interesting that this 
you know, sort of ostensibly Shinto-based um, NGO, OISCA was the uh, organization that you chose to uh, do your fieldwork and book about. Um, can you then tell us a little bit about OISCA and about its uh, goals, philosophies, um, the history of the organization to the extent that that's relevant? Yeah. Um, yeah, the history of OISCA is really interesting because it's one of the oldest NGOs in Japan. Uh, so most of the of the narrative about Japanese nonprofits and NGO start, you know, around the, the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis in the 1970s. Uh, but then it picks up, you know, mostly people focus on the rise of nonprofits after the Kobe earthquake in 1995. Uh, that's when the legal system, you know, for NPOs and nonprofits to register uh, came into effect. And so, you know, people tend to refer to that period as the history of NGOs in Japan, but you know, OISCA started in 1961 officially, but had been around as an entity, you know, from the 1950s. Uh, and, you know, there were only two, three other organizations at the time that did sort of international development type work. Um, so in that sense, you know, OISCA, uh, I think, offers a really interesting insight into, into the history of NGOs in Japan and development aid in general, because you know, 1960s is also when JICA, the Japan International Cooperation Agency, which is the Japanese version of USAID, uh, you know, that in 1960s, it was, you know, it was when it was founded. Uh, so, so Japan's governmental aid structures and systems were still in its infancy at the time. Uh, and so OISCA in many ways, you know, led the way for what Japanese international aid would look like. Um, so, you know, tracing its history, I think, ended up being really interesting. Uh, and the fact that it came out of a Shinto, you know, inspired religious movement was also unexpected for me because that's not what I went looking for. Um, and but it turned out to be really it, it gave me insights into Japanese history, Japanese politics that I had no idea about. And it might be that I'm just ignorant about Japanese modern history. Um, but it really caught me by surprise because, um, because the, it was through the, so the, the founder of Oiska was the founder of, of Ananaikyo, which is uh, this Shinto-inspired religious movement that comes out of a bigger uh, Shinto-inspired um, group called Omotokyo. Um, and interestingly, it was through his role, through this founder's uh, uh, role as a religious leader that he came into contact with powerful political figures, you know, in the 1950s onwards. So politicians, um, uh, you know, the, you know, as I mentioned in the book, the president of, um, of Nichidai, of one of the universities in Japan, you know, they all... Uh, linked up with with the founder of Oiska because of his role as a religious leader, because they believed that his role as a as a, the leader of a, of a religious organization could lead to votes or um, you know consolidate certain political interests around you know nationalist sort of interests um, and and so you know Ananaikyo, the founder you know they all had uh, as you know as I explained in the book um, you know conservative leanings and you know right wing connections in terms of political ideologies um, about you know uh, the emperor about um, revising the way that World War II the Japan's role in the Second World War was thought you know they they wanted to put forth 
ideas that, you know, that Japan was trying to liberate Asia and did a lot of good around the, around the region and so on. And so, you know, and so a lot of the, the older staff members at OISCA come from the religious organization. And so they also had those, you know, sorts of messages they wanted to put forth. Um, and I found that really surprising and I did not expect it at all. Um, but it's been interesting, you know, because I never knew, I never knew that people who were behind uh, creating Japan's development aid structure system, you know, had such strong ties with, you know, basically the Liberal Democratic Party and, you know, other conservative, um, you know, even more conservative figures behind that, behind that um, historical formation. So I found that really interesting. So um, that, that uh, ties in nicely to the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is about Oiska's then aid philosophy, right? So your, your, the title of your book is Becoming One, um, and you suggest that that's part of a sort of moral imaginary of becoming one that's couched in terms of very specifically Japanese values of the, you know, in, in, in scare quotes of the type that are colored by the sort of religious and politically conservative nature of Oiska. So can you tell us about um, how, how Oiska aid works um, in, uh, in practice, sort of, you know, what, what is their philosophy? What is it that they're trying to do? Um, and in particular, you, you, you use this word, dorokusai, uh, uh, in Japanese to describe it. I wonder if you could unpack that for our, for our listeners. Yeah. Um, so the idea of becoming one was in some ways, it seems some, in some ways it's obvious um, when you interact with people in Oiska um, because they see that a lot, you know. Um, and, and when I first came across it was, so when you, so Oiska runs these training centers where people from, so they have training centers in Japan and they have training centers around the Asia Pacific region. Uh, and in the training centers in Japan, which is when I first, you know, where I first went, um, they have trainees come from all over the world, mostly from, you know, Asia, but also from other parts uh, like Central America. Uh, and they live together for a year. And it's a very communal, collectivist sort of lifestyle where, you know, everybody sleeps in, you know, gender segregated dorm rooms. Uh, there's Japanese style baths. So which means that everybody, you know, I mean, women and men separated, but, you know, bathe together. Uh, everybody wakes up at five in the morning uh, and, you know, we clean and there are these morning routines, which I describe in the book as well. You know, I begin the book with these morning routines because it's it seemed to me militaristic because on the one hand you have things like the Jiotaiso, which is the um I you know I assume the audience is not necessarily going to be uh Japanese scholars. So you know these exercises that people do in schools or sometimes uh, you know in, in companies um and you know it's to this to this music to this particular music and you do these prescribed sort of movements. Um so part of so, so that's not militaristic necessarily but it's accompanied by salutes and military forms of marching and you raise uh the you know the japanese national flag um and so on you know so when i first saw that i you know of course i was taken aback because it's not what i expected to see in a in an ngo um and you know i i've worked in japanese ngos and you know that were founded much later more recent ones 
um, and they don't look like that at all, right? So, and and because I'm Japanese, uh, you know, rel- at the time I was in my 20s, um, you know, a relatively young Japanese um, person. And so people in Oiska, when, you know, they would anticipate that I would be horrified or think that it's anachronistic. And so they would tell me, oh, you must think that this is so weird and you must think that this is so, you know, anachronistic. Um, but it's really important because it's a way to bring people together and to become one, right? Like, or, you know, um, and so they kept explaining these disciplinary um, collectivist sort of lifestyle as, you know, important for people from different cultures and upbringing to come together um, and become one and explain that as being important for, you know, if they go on, what well, idea was that they would go back to their communities and become community leaders to lead, you know, some kind, you know, a form of uh, sustainable development initiative of some kind. And in order to do that, they would have to learn how to become one with people in their communities. And so their explanation of it was, you know, if you are marching down, you know, towards the flagpoles, you know, you have to be aware of the person on your right and on your left and make sure that you are matching their movement and that sort of consideration of other people's movement to become one with others in the physical movement, you know, was important for, you know, spiritually becoming one with others and therefore be able to become good leaders in a community, Um, which was really, you know, interesting because it seems egalitarian, you know, all one, you know, but obviously it was very hierarchical as well. Um, And, yeah, so in practice, it was, you know, part of it was um, these, was, was, you know, were these collectivist lifestyles. Um, and, and, on, and on the other hand, it was also these ideas of, um, you know, becoming one with nature, uh, paying attention to the rhythms of the seasons and, you know, the texture and condition of the soil. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, is common to any agricultural and, de- you know, organic agricultural endeavor. Um, but they would, you know, s- talk about that in terms of the the founders' ideas of being in tune with the natural world and therefore using organic methods. Um, yeah, and this idea of doroksai, um, again, you know, this was, when I first went to, or maybe it was the second time that I went to Myanmar, and I met uh, the at the time the staff member who was in the Yangon office, um, and you know, and she just gave me an overview of what Oiska does, and she, you know, she explained to me, oh, you know, Oiska is an organization that the did Doroksai, you know, and I didn't really, I noted it down, but I didn't really think about it, um, and then later on I realized, you know, like that makes that's a really great metaphor for yeah, what Oiska does and what its ethos is, because, you know, on the one, it's about, yes, it, you know, do, and I'm, I'm making a pun out of it as well, but, you know, because Doro, right, it means mud. Um, so in some sense, you know, in some ways, it is this idea of, you know, getting muddy in the fields, becoming one with nature, um, but also the phrase means, you know, sort of, you know, not, you know, simple in a, in a positive way, you know, not sophisticated, not, you know, not urban. So, you know, something, there's a sort of um, dignified or virtuous simplicity implied in Doroksai um, that I think, you know, Oiska, Oiska staff members really wanted to put forth 
Um, and I think this collective living, disciplined lifestyle was harking back to these, you know, Japanese ideas of what it means to live this virtuous, you know, simplified lifestyle. Yeah, that reminded me um, of uh, the way that sometimes in, um, uh, say, the business papers and stuff, uh, you'll, you'll see Japanese pundits uh, talking about Japanese capitalism versus Western capitalism as wet versus dry, right? That somehow uh, Western capitalism is very dry, it's it's rational, it's quantified, it's it's inhuman in a sense, but that, you know, because we Japanese have a different way of uh, being in the world and interacting with people, our capitalism is more wet, right? And I, it seems to me that there's a there's a really sort of interesting parallel um, in the way that you're describing this you know, ideological sort of rhetorical move to being uh, dorokusai, to being sort of you know, down in the mud in that sense of, you know, kind of a wet, messy, but also very personal, right, way of, of doing things. Um, and that also, um, it seems to me, uh, uh, connects nicely to another one of these uh, keywords that you talk about for oiska, which is hitozukuri, right? So uh, I guess you would translate that as what people making or is there a better translation for that could you tell us sort of how how works uh for oiska and, and what's the the process and the sort of goal or end point um and how it's related to the religious character of oiska if that's relevant yeah um yeah so you know hitozukuri is something that other aid organiz- aid entities use in japan as well and you know specifically jica uses it the government aid agency because for a long time they said that that's what they do. They, you know, hitozukuri, or, you know, I translated it as making persons. Um, and, you know, it's basically human resource development, uh, you know, through trainings or knowledge transfer skills transfer uh, in, in the JICA sense. Um, and, but for Oiska, so for Oiska, you know, I I should have, I, maybe I do do it. I can't remember, but um, I should have a sense of when Oiska started to use the word Hitozukuri um, specifically. But I wonder if partly it was a way to, you know, link up to the language that Jaika was using. But, you know, it's also a language that religious groups use uh, in terms of, you know, reforming the world through the cultivation of people in a particular spiritual way. Um, so it has this wide capacity to include all sorts of different interests. Um, and so, you know, for Oiska, I think the hitozukuri um, encompassed the kind of the, the way that they wanted to realize their vision. So, you know, as I mentioned, these disciplinary practices and collectivist lifestyle that they instilled on trainees, you know, for throughout the year, um, it was a way to create, you know, in some ways, you know, the hope to create new kinds of people who would not be individualistic, who would not be driven by self-interest, and who would always be attentive to the collective, to the interests and needs of others, and um, in particular, to, you know, to that of the of the well-being of the collective. Um, and so, I think that you know, in the end, those are the kinds of people that they wanted to to nurture, uh, people who would, yeah, who would, you know. Uh, participate in collective cleaning duties and, uh, you know, be aware of even if you finish your own work, you go on and help others in order to make sure that the whole unit, the whole organization is, you know, is going forward or, you know, getting the work done. And again, you know, that's, that's often described as very, as a very Japanese 
thing, right? Asking that the very Japanese value. Um, so, and and part of it was, um, yeah, and part of it is a religious, um, you know, has a religious inflection because there are a lot of other new religious organizations in Japan that emphasize this, you know, we need to change the world from the individual outwards. Um, by changing the one person, we can change the world sort of belief system. Um, but, you know, this created a, a sort of dilemma for people because, you know, first of all, how do you measure that you have changed the person? I mean, maybe as educators, you know, we face the same dilemma. Um, but, you know, like JICA, for example, funded some of their activities uh, and or other organizations, you know, other donors um, were behind some of these training programs. And of course, they wanted reports. They want to see, you know, the, the outputs, right? Um, how do we know that we've changed the person, which is not really measurable. Um, so, and a lot of them um, would, a lot of the trainees would, you know, spend a year in Japan or in a training center in Asia, go back to their communities. But many of them didn't really go on. I mean, most of them didn't, you know, haven't really gone on to, become leaders of community development in the way that Oiska uh, envisions uh, because it's difficult, right? It's, it's hard for it because these trainees are usually in their late teens or early 20s. And so, you know, when they go back to their communities, they're young, even though they've spent a year maybe in Japan, you know, they don't have that kind of authority in their communities that would allow them to become leaders. Uh, they don't have the resources necessarily. So, you know, some of them would introduce organic methods in their community, in their villages, uh, and that would be revolutionary in itself. Uh, but that also took a lot of convincing. And, uh, you know, it was never so one of the things that OISCA staff members, you know, would say to me, but also I found in the archives that they've been saying this from the 1970s, uh, that they, they need to follow up better with trainees once they leave. Uh, because they know that this one year is, is not going to really change a person. And so, you know, they need other kinds of support and follow-up um, systems so that they can actually implement what they learn um, and continue to be the kinds of people that Oscar wants them to be, you know, once they return to their to their countries. Yeah, that's really interesting, the, the sort of question of uh, the, the, the follow-up and, and how um, the trainees would sort of bring these, you know, whether essentially this experience at OISCA is, is the kind of, I don't know whether, whether you'd call it a kind of cultural capital or not, uh, or some intellectual capital that could actually be you know, sort of actuated in the, on the ground. Um, and that, that presents a sort of really, you know, fascinating question um, for thinking about, I think, aid more generally. And I thought it was one of the really you know, interesting pieces of the book in the way that, you know, this, this case study illuminates a, a very big you know, problem about uh, the the gap between intention and uh, and result. Um, so we've been we've been covering a, a lot of the material uh, that's in uh, chapters one and two, specifically um, in the book, um, sort of implicitly at least. So I'd like to actually jump into uh, chapter three, if that's okay, because um, chapter three you begin with um, talking about the Furusato movement. Um, and if you could uh, explain what that is, uh, when did it start, and sort of how it's um, relevant to thinking about the the history uh, and the works of Oiska uh, in in Myanmar. 
Yeah, so um, so one of the you know submission statements, shall we say, that OISCA has had um, probably from the 2000s or um, I should have done, I should have reviewed the dates, um, but around then has been this idea of furusato zukuri or furusato movement. And the word, you know, furusato in Japanese uh, means, you know, hometown or home village. It has more of a rural imaginary. Um, and, you know, when people talk of furusato, it's, you know, sort of these rice paddies in, you know, this village nestled in mountains. Um, and, you know, it has a nostalgic um, connotation to it. Um, and, uh, you know, and the reason why I, I focused, you know, one chapter on it is because I, you know, there, when I was in, you know, when I was doing my field work, one of the, the key uh, tasks that the, the headquarters, that the Tokyo office had to figure out was, what is this Furusato movement that they're trying to create? Um, and so I remember being in meetings where they, you know, the staff members would say, okay, people from above. So, you know, the leader or, you know, the, the president and the board of directors and stuff, you know, they've come up with this idea of Purusato movement as one of the, the goals of OISCA. But what does that actually mean in terms of what we do? Um, and so, you know, they had to figure out what the people above them meant by the term Furusato movement. Um, but that was actually really, you know, those were really interesting conversations because we sat around and people talked about, okay, so what is Furusato for people? Um, and how would that translate to our projects? Uh, and so, you know, Furusato, so, you know, we just threw out ideas about, you know, so staff members would throw out ideas about, you know, what does Furusato mean? What does Furusato mean to you? And these were, you know, the staff members, this was in the overseas uh, projects and they were in charge of the yeah the project that projects that they had um, around the Asia Pacific region uh, and they were mostly in their twenties early thirties uh, you know and, and they would say like oh Furusato is you know it was it had an affective connotation right for them as well as uh, um, you know as well as an actual image of a landscape uh, and so I found that really interesting that they you know that they were that they were talking about these ideas of Furusato that comes out, you know, it's very, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it has very Japanese connotations of, of what that means, Furusato. And they were trying to translate that A, into practical projects in the training centers around the world. Um, and, you know, B, to make it, to make it relevant in a non, in non-Japanese settings. Um, and, and yeah, and, but, but interestingly, uh, a lot of the non-Japanese trainees and staff members, the Burmese staff members in Myanmar, um, you know, they, they also picked up, they would sometimes use the word, the word, you know, Furusato to talk about the training centers. Uh, and, you know, yes, they would talk about their countries as Furusato as well. Um, but they would often mention the training center itself as being like Furusato for them because, um, you know, for for example, in the training center in Myanmar, you know, it, you know, people, some of the staff members had been there for, you know, 15 years or 10 years at least or most, uh, you know, or uh, or more. Uh, and they'd been there since they were 18 or 19. Um, and some of them had married other staff members or married a tra- another, tra- you know, once they became staff, married a trainee. Um, a couple of them had children in the training center. 
Um, and so a lot of them would say, you know, yeah, this is like my furusato, right? It's home. Um, they would, you know, say it's my home for me because, you know, I grew up with these people. Um, I'm raising my family here. So I found that really interesting that on the one hand, it was, I mean, it had so many different, you know, levels or scales. Um, because, you know, on the one hand, it was about furusato imageries of, you know, rice paddies and villages in Japan. But it was also referring to the training centers uh, and, the, you know, some of the writings by the president, you know, talk about Mother Earth itself being furusato for all, you know, all living beings. You know, it's a home um, that, you know, that we should take care of, you know, that kind of kind of language as well. So I think, you know, Oiska was trying to use the word furusato. Um, I, I know, in a, you know, it seemed in a kind of effective way. Uh, in that it links, you know, a very particularly Japanese image with, you know, trying to refer to Mother Earth itself as being furusato for all life forms. Um, and it's also about being, you know, about a training center, but also about, um, about the country. And yeah, I mean, it was a very multifaceted. They were able to mobilize it in a way that was very multifaceted. Um, and I found that, yeah, I found that, yeah, really interesting to think about how people tried to make sense of the word. Yeah, and it strikes me that um, furusato, along with some of the other Japanese sort of terminology we've been talking about, um, hitozukuri um, and dorokusai, they're they're just specific enough to be sort of recognizably um, Japanese, and yet vague and kind of polysemic, and you know, multi, uh, enough that they can. Um, that you actually have to sit down and have these staff meetings to figure out what furusato means, but also that, you know, it can be Mother Earth itself. It can also be Myanmar. It could be, you know, it could be the training center. Um, and it strikes me that the, you know, these sort of protean malleable, um, words at the center probably, you know, are, are really important to the story of how, um, you know, there's a, a, a maybe a maybe a gap isn't a charitable way to put it, but a gap between sort of the intention on the Japanese side and sort of how it's um, interpreted, adapted, actualized. Um, you know, by the by people in Myanmar, uh, by the trainees, etc. Um, yeah, and that get, that gets um, that gets that's one of the reasons that I wanted to you know sort of uh, specifically focus in on that Furusato aspect of Chapter Three. In Chapter Four, um, you know. I guess you're sort of going back to this keyword of doroksai. Um, you're talking about what you you say the ethics of muddy labor, um, the virtue of immersing oneself in the literal muddiness of physical labor and the metaphorical messiness of intimate relationships. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what, what you're calling the ethics of of muddy labor? And we've we've sort of begun to touch on this at the beginning, um, but what you see as the relationship between mud and the in, and intimacy and the sort of ethics that are part of the Oiska mission. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. I think one of the one of the things that that I took away from from Oiska is the ways that a lot of the staff members, especially the young people, the young staff who were not necessarily from Ananaikyo or were not religious at all, um, didn't necessarily, you know, out you know from get go believe in reviewing or, you know, having this revisionist view of the Second World War and all of that, you know, how they they would, you know, I mean, and some of them did leave, you know, because they were really uncomfortable with the approaches that Oiska was taking, the disciplinary lifestyle and all of that. 
but also you know the ones I met that had stayed had you know really grappled with why OISCA as an organization might be emphasizing on these things that seem out of step with current times um, and you know what it might how they're making sense of it themselves and you know I, I think I mentioned this in the introduction but I found that sort of struggle really um, inspiring I guess in some ways um, you know because they weren't just saying you know just saying, I don't believe this, I'm going to leave it, but, you know, trying to, you know, really, you know, make sense of, you know, really make sense of, you know, the the rattle that they, they felt with what they believed in and the values that they held. And, you know, and I, I, I think that's, that's what I would call ethical labor. It's that sort of, you know, and a lot of, you know, anthropologists and others have written about this. Um, but, you know, there's the, the, it's it's both an everyday moral struggle um, with, but it's also you know these little moments of um, of crisis, sort of you know moral crisis that happens throughout the day or throughout um, your life, uh, and you try to work it out. Like where do you stand, you know, vis a vis these various um, you know struggles and conflicts that you come across. Um, and, you know, I, I find that to be an effort, you know, the ethics of, you know, basically everyday, everyday living. Uh, and, you know, I saw that in, in Oiska, maybe in a more, um, you know, highlighted way, in a more, uh, what's the word, you know, extreme <laughs> perhaps situations, um, because some of the things made people, you know, really uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, but I found that, you know, something, yeah, something to take, you know, really, you know, people seem to be, you know, both Burmese staff and Japanese staff seem to be uh, trying to derive meaning from those kinds of struggles, um, you know, to make sense of why they were doing what they were doing, why the organization was asking them to do things in a particular way. Um, And I found that struggle, you know, to be, yeah, to be, if it was meaningful for them, I wanted to understand, you know, why and how it became meaningful um, for them. And, you know, so part of it was, you know, the muddiness of the labor, and especially in, in Myanmar, because the, the place, the landscape that they were in, you know, it's in a region called the dry zone. So it's a very dry area and it gets very hot um, in the in the hot seasons. Uh, and so the land was not really conducive to agriculture. And so, you know, I mean, muddy makes it seem like it was wet, but, the, you know, but the soil was actually quite dry and hard. Um, but, you know, so they had to struggle with with that. And you know, make sense of why are we why are we doing this here where the soil is so bad for rice cultivation? Um, you know, in the end, by the time you know when I was there, it, it was thriving as an agricultural um, center, so they had succeeded. But you know, so there was that aspect of it. Um, but also because you live intensely with other people for twelve months or you know longer for the staff members, you know, you, it gets there's a lot of relational conflicts and friction. And, uh, you know, I, you know, there were fights as I, you know, describe in the, in the book. And, you know, I've described in, um, in, in a recent article that just came out, um, there were also romantic relationships, um, that broke down or made people uncomfortable. And so there was a lot of that kind of, you know, muddiness of relationships, you know, when you spend, you know, intimate time, um, with others for, for 12 months or more. Um, so there was that sort of working out of, of relationships and, you know, what, yeah, I mean, you know, where do you situate yourself vis-a-vis those kinds of, um, uh, you know, thick, 
um, sorry, only the Japanese word is coming to my but thick sort of relationships. Um, yeah, in, in these sort of enclosed, enclosed spaces. Yeah, so that's, um, you have both the, the collective muddiness and uh, individual muddiness, as well as the actual sort of physical question of, you know, sort of uh, the, the mud of, of the environment, of, of nature, so to speak. Um, in, in chapter five, uh, you, you were just talking about relationships, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in relation to chapter four, um, in chapter five, you talk about the, how the family metaphor, uh, that Oiska, uh, sort of deploys promotes intimacy and solidarity on the one hand, but also fundamental power imbalances and relational hierarchies on the other. Um, this was... I think particularly interesting to me as, you know, a, a historian of modern Japan, because um, it harkens back to you know, all these sort of questions about the uh, historical relationship between uh, Burma slash Myanmar and modern Japan. Um, how does this play out on the ground uh, for Oiska's uh, aid efforts in Myanmar? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a really good question. And of course, you know, when I've given papers about this project, a lot of people ask me about, so how did the Burmese people react or, you know, to Japanese people being there having been colonial powers and, you know, the history of Japanese colonialism. Um, And, you know, this might be because I'm Japanese, but people, you know, didn't, really mentioned colonialism to me when I was in Myanmar. Um, you know, they, yeah, they didn't, it wasn't really uh, a thing that they would, that they mentioned, you know, it came up when, because, you know, in, in the parts that they are, sometimes they would discover things from the second world war that belonged to Japanese soldiers. Um, you know, but that was never really, um, I mean, that didn't happen when I was there, you know, I've heard stories of this and how, you know, Oiska staff members helped bring those objects back to Japan and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't really, uh, people didn't really mention Japanese colonialism to me. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that it, people don't talk about it, but, um, uh, and, but, and so for, you know, for both, for both the Japanese and the Burmese staff members, the family metaphor as being both about solidarity and hierarchy seemed to you know, sort of seem common sense almost. Um, they really, you know, both the Burmese and the Japanese staff members talked about being in the training center, being in Oiska as, yeah, being like family. Um, and of course they interpreted it, you know, in their own ways as I, you know, described in the, in the book. But at the end of the day, it was a metaphor that allowed people to accept that we could all be in this together, right? Becoming, being one, um, but also having unequal relationships, right? Like, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a quote unquote traditional Japanese sense, right? The father has authority. That's so normal, but we're all part of, you know, the family, part of the community. And um, yeah. And I found that really, yeah, I found that really interesting. Um, And yeah, I mean, in some ways it's, you know, it's very, it's something that Oiska staff members, um, not consciously, but, you know, as an organization, I think has done, really well is is invoke these concepts or ways of framing things that make potentially difficult things 
common sense. Like they make them atarimae. Like they make them like obviously we're gonna accept this. So you know, like being like family is a is one way to do that. I think. Or you know, this is like furusato, right? It's like yeah, of course, there's nothing. You know, of course, we want to be in a place that feels like our home. You know that we've always cherished. You know, for a long time. Or you know, as I describe in a you know in different. Not in the not in the book so much, but in a in a chapter in an edited volume. You know, I talk about how, you know, but it's yeah, this is not about Shinto. You know, the organization is not about Ananaikyo. It's not about religion. You know, it's about Shinto. But Shinto is not about religion. It's about Japanese culture. Um, you know how we value the you know the sun, for example, or you know there are you know nature has you know nature has life forms that we need to respect, and that's Shinto. You know, and Japanese cultural values, and it's you know, atarimae, like even people who are not religious would accept that. So, you know, I think the family metaphor is one of those um, things that Oiska does really well in in advancing, you know, the kinds of visions that they want to instill um, in the world. And of course, you know, it has these, as you mentioned, um, uh, resonances with you know, with Japanese modern history, Second World War, or you know, earlier that can be a bit disconcerting as well yeah i thought this um aspect of sort of as you say sort of naturalizing uh the the hierarchical uh, what are often very hierarchical relationships whether that's through family whether um you know in other ways um is something that kept you know it, it kept coming back to me as i was reading the book that the whole idea of becoming one you know, because of course, it, look, look, I'm you know I'm American. Uh, it says right on our currency, "E pluribus unum," out of the many, one, right? But that's also potentially a, a rather terrifying uh, sort of national motto, uh, depending on how you look at it and how it's actually practiced, you know, uh, on the ground. But it seemed to me that you know the becoming one that you're describing here is full of these tensions where it's becoming one, but in many ways becoming a Japanese one. Right, and that the the naturalization of that through the metaphor of family, um, through these ideas about you know uh, the the muddiness, which again connects you to to a sort of naturalized kind of set of relationships. Right, that this was um, part of that you know, Japanese Burmese um, hierarchy that seems to you know, animate a great deal of uh, what interests you in thinking about Oisko. Um, and one of the other places that I saw that is in your final chapter, uh, in which you're talking about uh, how discipline in the training centers connects to these very specifically Japanese imaginaries. Um, and you pay a lot of attention to, as you as you put it, discipline as a particular modality on the one hand, um, and then, of course, the physicality of labor in the environment. Um, how does this chapter sort of fit into the rest of the book? Um, and more importantly, for me, it was, you know, uh, why did you put this one last? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really qu- good question. And, you know, I'd like to ask you, you know, after I, I guess, answer this question, um, you know, if you think that it could have gone somewhere else um, in the book, but for me, it felt slightly different because the other chapters were all in some way or another about grappling with this, you know, ideology of Japanese-ness in some way, and how to universalize that um, while being particular. 
Um, and I just couldn't get away from from that. Whatever I wrote, it ended up being about that question. But for some reason, writing about the the my the microbes microbes yeah in the last chapter you know these you know the the um bokashi fertilizer and the em you know microorganisms um for some reason writing about that made me be able to write about questions of discipline and collectivity that were not just about questions of japanese-ness and of course, it had something to do with that because, you know, it has, there were, you know, religious reasons and all that about, you know, lineage, you know, these sort of relationships um, through which EM became a thing. Um, you know, these effective microorganisms in agriculture are a thing in a new, in new religious movement in Japan. Um, so, you know, you, it is about that a little bit, but, but it, it allowed me to write about the relationship that people in these training centers were trying to establish with their environment, with the soil, you know, through these microorganisms that were, you know, also about becoming one in some ways, right? Having these relationships with these microorganisms, but it wasn't just, you know, you could, I could write about that without it being about Japanese-ness per se. Um, And that's why I put it last because I felt that it was pointing to, um, you know, some of the potential ways that we can think about sustainability or, you know, sustainable environments um, from OISCA that, yeah, it doesn't have to be about nationalist ideologies. But, I mean, I'm interested to hear from you, you know, if you think that it could have come earlier or something. Oh, no, else, I had no intention of, of suggesting that. And, by the way, I'm the one who gets to ask the question. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it just, you know, it, it occurred right. to me that... Um, this was sort of, even though it carries on uh, a lot of the themes that you are working with throughout, that it, it does sort of represent this you know, significant departure um, where you're really thinking about uh, visions of sustainable development in a way that is both linked to uh, some of these issues of you know Japanese-ness and discipline and the sort of life of the training centers, um, but also this much you know, sort of larger, you know, global environmental uh, problem of sustainability and development, um, which I think, you know, it it makes perfect sense to me to have that last in the sense that it's um, a way in in which to very specifically situate your case study of OISCA within, you know, a much larger context um, as a sort of part of a global environmental history and a history of, you know, global agriculture and sustainability. so we've we've come to the the end of the book, um, but I know you also have uh, other things uh, in the works, and you've talked a little bit about some of the research and publishing you've done since the book. Um, what's going on now? What what what's coming down the pipe? Um, so I I'm I'm working on so my new project has been about still about trainings in some way. Um, but I've been interested in trainings that um, I started out interested in trainings that JICA conducts around disaster preparedness around Bosai. Uh, so, you know, Japan, you know, boasts as being um, very good at, you know, being prepared for natural, you know, quote unquote, natural disasters. Um, and so one of the, you know, the, the JICA training center in Kobe, in the Kansai area is focused, you know, you know, around a lot of their trainings are around uh, disaster preparedness. 
um, and not necessarily about technological or infrastructural methods, but you know what are called soft you know approaches um, through community-based um, disaster risk reduction or through schools and so on. So you know, so I was interested in understanding better again. You know, how do you cultivate people who are prepared for disasters that are often unpredictable um, and catastrophic, right? Some of them, you know, might be unimaginable, um, you know, which became a very big word. Um, and so, yes, I, and, and especially to people from other countries that, you know, have different environmental risks, they have different political systems, they have different, um, you know, approaches to the future, potentially, um, so yeah, so it's sort of a continuation of my interest in making persons, <laughs> um, and trainings, uh, and also, you know, about how do you, yeah, prepare people towards, um, uh, to expect the unexpected, you know, how do you prepare people, um, like that in a, in an international, um, you know, transnational context. So I've been looking at, um, these trainings in Japan, but, uh, and how people from a particular um, town in Chile, um, in South America, um, called Talcahuano, um, how people from the disaster risk reduction department in this city who have all trained in Japan, how are they translating what they learn um, in Kobe and taking it back to Talcahuano and adapting it to their to their context? So again, it's a it's a transnational project. So I've been going to Japan and Chile. Um, which has been, you know, sort of logistically hard. I, you know, I didn't really think about how far these countries are. Um, but it's been really, really fascinating to see what kinds of things, you know, people pick, you know, in Chile pick up from Japan and take back. Um, and, and the kinds of, yeah, I mean, I'm still working on my different analyses, but, you know, the kind, the importance of, you know, incomplete translations, you know, the productivity of that, um, and, you know, questions of ethics are still things that I'm, I'm really interested in. Well, that does sound like you're certainly going to be racking up a lot of frequent flyer miles. But uh, sitting here, you know, sitting oh. here in Nagoya, where we're we're expecting the uh, well, it's no longer the unexpected. We're expecting, you know, certain disaster, certainly during my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, I will be very keen to mm-hmm. uh, read your next book when it comes out. Uh, and I, I hope <laughs> we'll uh, be able to have you back on the channel when that happens. Yeah, so thank you for uh, spending an hour with us, Dr. Watanabe. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Great, thank you so much.